I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The regulatory pathway for biosimilars is still a work in progress at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, but around the world, the industry is growing as regulators have resolved issues that remain obstacles in the United States. We spoke to Amit Munchi, CEO of Eparis Biopharmaceuticals, about the opportunities in emerging and developed markets, his company's strategic approach, and when we'll see a vibrant biosimilars industry in the United States. Ahmed, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Can you start with a, a brief overview of Eparis, which many of our listeners may not be familiar with? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Eparis is a two-and-a-half-year-old company. Uh, it was originally venture-backed and uh, now is a publicly traded company. We are focused exclusively on the development and commercialization of biosimilars, predominantly in ex-U.S. markets. Um, we, uh, our lead program is BOW015. It's a biosimilar to Remicade or Infliximab, and, um, and I'd be happy to talk more about that, that program as we go through this uh, conversation. Epirus became a, a public company in July through a, a reverse merger with Zalicus. The, the company raised $36 million through a private financing around that time. Given the robust IPO market we've had, why did you decide to go public in this way? Um, thank you for... Um, for bringing that uh, question forward, it's an important question. It was an important part of our strategy to think about how to how to move the company toward the public markets. Um, when Tom Shea, our CFO, and I looked at the public markets back in uh, March and April, um, the relatively high valuations in the marketplace made us a little bit nervous about what the market would look like six months from um, from then. And by the time we were ready, would the market still be in place? Would they still be robust? Etc. So we decided to take a slightly alternative point of uh, pathway in merging with Zalicus, and, and it really gave us three things. It gave us an immediate public listing uh, with a uh, with an existing shelf or an S3 uh, offering in place. Um, number two, it gave us access to cash that was on the Zalicus balance sheet, and we closed at uh, somewhere north of twelve million dollars in cash on the Zalicus balance sheet, in addition to the, the funds that we raised. Um, and third, uh, Zalicus had recently compl- completed a, uh, a broad rheumatoid arthritis trial in Eastern Europe and had a broad database of patients and physicians that uh, could help us accelerate our European um, clinical program. So we thought there was a, uh, a small strategic rationale and a, a larger sort of broader financial rationale to go this route as opposed to a traditional IPO. So you've won approval in India for your first biosimilar infliximab, a, a Remicade biosimilar for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. What other markets are you targeting and, and when might you expect to, to be in them? Yes, yeah, so we have um, initial market approval in India. We anticipate launching in India uh, late in the fourth quarter, early first quarter. And um, we believe that that package, which combines a, a robust 
double blind um, active control phase three trial in India with a phase one program that we completed in the UK is sufficient for a broad range of markets around the world, including um, multiple Latin American markets, Southeast Asian markets, uh, North Africa, et cetera. And we anticipate filing in those markets throughout the next year. So what's your strategy in terms of targeting markets? Are, are you focusing on emerging markets or are, you, are the real opportunities going to be in the developed markets like the United States and Europe? Yeah, we, we see, uh, we sort of break out the world in the, into three buckets that's uh, clearly in scope for us as a company. Um, bucket number one is emerging markets or what we call accessible emerging markets. So these are markets that will uh, have a robust platform for biosimilars, have already approved multiple biosimilars. Um, governments in these markets are, are very actively engaged in getting these biosimilars approved and making them available to the patient population. Um, these are markets uh, like Southeast Asia, most of Latin America, India, South Africa, etc. And that's our, our initial target focus as a company. Um, simultaneous to that, there's a second group of countries that we're targeting and these are countries that we call local production markets. These are markets like China, Brazil, Russia that um, that either have a strong preference for or a legal mandate for local production. And in these markets, we transfer technology, manufacturing technology, into those markets in order to enable market entrance. And we're currently processing partnerships in both Brazil and China. And then finally, uh, we're looking to Europe. And um, we've been in active conversations with regulators and partners about crafting a European strategy. And um, for now, we are putting the U.S. on a bit of a back burner and waiting to see how the, uh, the regulatory process works out. Um, as you'll appreciate, as a small company, we can do anything, but we really can't do everything. So we, we've chosen to remain focused on those markets that have viable regulatory frameworks um, and the three buckets I just mentioned, the accessible emerging markets, the local production markets, and eventually Europe as uh, core to our strategy. How does pricing in emerging markets compare to the pricing of biologics in, in, in general? And what kind of discounts are you expecting to, to be selling biosimilars for in, in more developed markets? Sure. Let me talk about the innovator pricing for a moment. Uh, there's a, a very broad range. A pricing, even within Europe, for example, where you have some countries that uh, where the innovator product is selling um, 30 to 40 percent higher than other countries, even within Europe. So there's a broad range globally in terms of where these products are priced. As a whole, the innovator companies have priced the uh, their products um, in emerging markets at or near European prices or at the low end of the European pricing range. Um, so that's sort of the range of the innovator. The discounts we can expect from there will range from 20% to 40% is our initial guess. And again, it'll depend on markets. It'll depend on government tendering situations. It'll depend on the competitive landscape. So um, it's really a market-by-market -market decision as opposed to sort of a, a pricing strategy globally. You know, the one thing you have to, if you take a step back and think about the global landscape, um, there is really very little harmonization uh, on overall um, market entry strategies and overall regulatory planning for the globe. You really have to think about region by region, country by country. So we, we sort of take it as a, uh, we take it down to the country level. We work closely with our partners in those countries to ascertain both regulatory strategy, 
access to government tenders and pricing. So what does the pipeline look like behind Infliximab? So behind Infliximab, we have a, a robust pipeline of two additional programs that are moving through the clinic. Um, the first is uh, a biosimilar to Jumeirah or Adalutumab, and second is a biosimilar to Avastin or Bevacizumab. And uh, those programs are proceeding uh, in a manner that would put them into the marketplace um, near the time of patent expiry in the markets that we're choosing to compete in. And, and have those been uh, identified externally or? You mean the markets? Yeah. Yeah, the markets are the ones I just mentioned, which is essentially uh, the ex-U.S. market. So we've seen a number of the, the biggest biotechs enter into alliances to produce biosimilars, including Amgen and Biogenetic and, and Celgene. How does the company expect to compete, particularly when you're not only up against the branded product, but possibly multiple biosimilars that come from big-name players? Sure. The, um, when you think about those alliances, you think about what, what does Amgen buy when they enter into a, a relationship with Actavis, for example. Uh, it's really U.S. commercial distribution. Um, Amgen has all the internal capabilities to make their own products and, and all the expertise and all, all the internal um, knowledge to do this correctly, um, as does a Pfizer, for example. And some country, some companies have chosen to uh, leverage partnerships like Samsung and Biogenetics. Some companies have chosen to go alone like Pfizer. Um, we use a hybrid strategy where we do all the, the internal development work ourselves, um, and then we use partners on the commercial side in multiple markets around the world um, where these partners have local expertise in their, in their specific markets. So while we don't have one overarching partnership, we, we have felt that given the fragmentation of the global market, it's far better to find local partnerships uh, in each individual market. And um, so we have a partnership that's, uh, that's in the works in China, a partnership that's in the works in, um, in Brazil. We have a partnership that's in play in India and Southeast Asia and other markets. So we've got multiple partnerships with folks that have actual regional expertise as opposed to one overarching partnership. So we think that's a, a much more practical way of putting products in the marketplace and, and taking advantage of local knowledge, local relationships, local uh, know-how on the regulatory side. Well, the naming of biosimilars remains a, a controversial and unresolved topic. Last week, a, a group of medical associations sent a letter to the FDA calling for different names for biosimilars and reference products. This is seen as an important issue as doctors may be less inclined to substitute a biosimilar for a branded alternative if the non-proprietary names are different. How important an issue is naming to the success of biosimilars, and, and what's the case for a single non-proprietary name for both a, a branded product and its biosimilar? Um, the, the naming question is a um, is an important question. Um, I, I will put two um, twists on that question or response to that question. Number one is that this is a U.S.-specific issue. Uh, outside the United States, biosimilars have already been approved. They've already taken on the exact same uh, generic name as the innovator, Patients have been treated for close to a decade with biosimilars, uh, including uh, erythropoietin, uh, the filgraftin products, human growth hormone, insulin. Um, dozens of these products have been approved around the world, including places like Japan and Europe. And patients have been treated, again, like I said, for close to a decade um, with no, no additional adverse events, nothing untoward that, that, that 
is seen is seemingly uh, being pointed to the United States as major risk. So this is clearly a U.S. phenomenon where folks are uh, worried about the safety of these products. Um, they're worried about the naming conventions of these products. Outside the United States, this is a non-issue. Um, as is the, the issue of substitutability, where in most markets around the world, uh, these products are deemed to be fully substitutable, substitutable to each other. So first, I'd like to just categorize this as a specific U.S.-only problem. Um, number two is, it's important to understand that there are product categories in the biologics that have slightly different names, but are widely seen as being completely substitutable for each other. Um, and I'll, I'll point to the EPO market in Europe for a moment. Um, we have EPO Alpha, which was the original Amgen and then J&J product. You have EPO Beta from Roche. Um, and then subsequently, you had an EPO Delta and EPO Omega and several other EPOs. And then, again, biosimilars to EPO Alpha and EPO Beta. And um, these products were widely substitutable uh, to each other, despite the fact that they had slightly different names. So, um Personally, I believe that this will all, all shake out and people will realize that these products have been used on the market for quite some time and the new versions of these more complex monoclonal antibodies, once they get enough uh, momentum in the marketplace and enough experience, I think people will realize that uh, substitutability is not an issue and, and naming is not an issue. So I think there's um, this is a U.S.-centric problem. When you look outside the United States, these problems seem to evaporate pretty quickly. Well, still, are you concerned about the impact how this gets resolved could have on, on the biosimilar industry? Um, I think it may affect how the U.S. Uh, adoption occurs. I think U.S. adoption is likely to be, my personal opinion, is likely to be slow in any case, whether you have the same name or, you know, if you have a Etanoset Alpha or an Etanoset Beta or um, or a slightly different derivation of the name Etanoset, um, I think the, or you've got the original uh, generic name of Ucanercept, I think the adoption rates are likely to be slower in the United States than the rest of the world anyway. And it's a function of the fact that we don't have a single-payer system um, and, and we don't have the same um, cost mechanisms in place that the rest of the world does. So um, you know, I think the adoption is going to be slow whether you have a single naming convention or multiple naming conventions. Um, I, I think the U.S. is going to be a slow adopter by similars. Well, it's been more than four years since the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act passed. That empowered the FDA to create an abbreviated pathway for biosimilars, but the agency has yet to establish a clear pathway. What do you see as the biggest issues that need to be resolved, and when do you think we'll have a vibrant biosimilars market in the United States? You know, we, as a company focused largely outside the United States, um, we, of course, always have one eye toward the United States, but our focus is, again, um, predominantly ex-U.S. I will tell you that um, I, I think the the FDA will eventually get into the same place as other regulatory agencies in the world that have been approving biosimilars for quite some time, the European agencies, et cetera, and take a, a much um, more pragmatic view on, on getting these products approved. Um, I can't talk to the political underpinnings, or I won't. I, I don't think I need to um, reflect on the political underpinnings that have led to a, a four-year delay in, in getting these guidelines into place. Um, but suffice to say, there's a lot of conflicting priorities between the major pharma companies and biotech companies that have a lot of products coming off patent and have a lot to lose, and large companies that are um, mobilizing into the biosimilar space. So. Um, it's it's a difficult political environment. Um, I'm um, 
you know, I'm not going to talk specifically about why the FDA is or is not fast or is or is not pragmatic. I do believe that over time, the FDA will come uh, to the exact same place that most European regulators have been, which is a much more pragmatic approach to getting these products approved. Amit Munshi, CEO of Eparis Biopharmaceuticals. Amit, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you again for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.